Today, we, we look at one of the most bitter and yet sweet emblems to ever grace the records of history. The symbol being more than just a simple symbol has been a constant reminder. It's a reminder of the human fallenness. And if there was ever anything engraved upon the cross other than here is Jesus the Messiah, it would be that you and I are in need of a Savior and here is Jesus. There is this constant reminder of of our fallenness. The emblem has been a reminder that, that humankind actually is not the rulers or the charters of their own destiny. It is a reminder that we do need a Savior. See, the cross of Christ is more than just a necklace that you put on around your neck or something that you have engraved within your Bible. It is, it is more than just an emblem that we stick upon the, the top of this communion uh, tray here. It is a reminder of suffering and shame. It is a reminder of how much our Lord Jesus loves us. So it is a reminder that the cross of Christ is one of suffering and shame. In fact, the Apostle Paul reminding the church at Corinth the power of the gospel to the Jew and to the Greek wrote these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And so it has been for the ages. The cross of Christ is foolishness to the prideful and the sinful and has become a thorn in the flesh of the society that we live in today because it is a constant reminder. The cross of Christ is a constant reminder that, that society today does not like, the sinner does not like unless they are broken by the word of God and by the Holy Spirit that says this, we are never good enough to be righteous. That is what the cross of Christ says to us. That we are never good enough to be right or righteous in ourself. And that is not a popular topic today. And so it is with the appropriate preaching of the word. And the laser-like focus of evangelism and outreach that we all should strive for. We can see people embrace the cross. One of the treasures of, of a pastor is seeing People embrace the cross is, is seeing people grow in their faith. Walking with the Lord closely and cleanly. That is one of the greatest rewards of, of being an overseer, a pastor, or leader in a church. See how people would embrace, embrace the cross. Oswald Chambers wrote these words, sobering words, if you will, on the cross of Christ saying, All heaven is interested in the cross of Christ. All hell is terribly afraid of it. While men are the only beings who more or less ignore its meaning. That's why we can wear a cross around a chain on our neck and we don't think about the Savior who was bore upon it. It's more than just a trinket. And I would go as far as to say the decline in church attendance and active discipleship and a desire to serve in the local church, I want you to listen, is because people who are Christ followers in their faith, they have lost their love for the cross of Christ. 
They have lost their love. As John the Revelator would say, they have abandoned or they have lost their first love. Now see, here's the thing. As a pastor, I am sure that people do not agree with everything that I say or, or the way that I lead. And I'm, I'm fine with that. I'm sure people would even talk about the pastor. He doesn't visit enough. He doesn't do this enough. And, you know, and I would be the first to admit my faults. I would be the first to admit to you. I might make you upset. You might not like something that I says. Pastor Jason might make you upset. He might say some things that you might not like. Your neighbor might make you upset. There might be some things that you don't like about he or she. But let me tell you this, Jesus will never steer you wrong. In fact, in case we forgot, it is him that we worship and not man. We don't come to church because the pastor. We don't come to church because the pastor is a dynamic preacher. We come to church because we love Jesus. We come to worship Him because we love the Savior who died on the cross. And if I'm thinking rightly about the cross of Christ, then Jesus should be so alive and so vibrant in my life that I do not mind rubbing elbows next to somebody who I don't agree with all the time. It is for the cause of Christ the King that we are called to unity. And sometimes it takes pushing a little bit of our pride to the side. And I ask you, if you will, if you'll join me as we stand for the reading of the Word of God, as we dig into this reminder of the cross of Christ, let's stand for the reading of the Word of the Lord, beginning at verse 16 in chapter 15. We continue to march through this chapter. And the Word of the, of the Lord says, And they led, the soldiers led him, that is Jesus, away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him. And they began to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him, and put a purple cloak, and and put his clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he would not take it. And they crucified him. And they divided his garments amongst them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read as such, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests but the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Aren't you glad that Christ did not come down from that cross that day? 
Let's pray. Lord, we pray that the reading of this word will encourage us, bring us the right reverence that we might need this morning to put the cross of Christ in proper perspective. May we worship the King of glory today, be reminded of that sacrifice as we gravitate towards the communion table. Let it be a strong reminder of what we celebrate today. We have freedom in Jesus. It's in His name I pray it. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so last week we saw Jesus demonstrate on the very onset of this transition towards the cross of what we know as the substitutionary atonement, which is a theological term that draws our attention to a courtroom scene. Theologians would appropriately call this the penal substitutionary atonement. To put it in simple layman's terms, we would say that Christ died for us. This substitutionary atonement, this is the onset of this atonement. This is seen in the releasing of Barabbas, the guilty, instead of Christ, the righteous, Barabbas, a murderer, a person who had his hand in the insurrection against Rome, who led a revolt. Barabbas, the guilty, instead of Christ, the righteous. And Pilate, wishing to appease the angry mob of of people, released a known criminal. The imagery is so amazing. It is so outstanding. It it is is so... uh, saturated with the love of of the Lord Jesus, for we see in this one glimpse the atoning work of Jesus where we should be like Barabbas. Christ died for us. And that should give us pause for worship, shouldn't it? It should give us pause for amen, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. And so we move into verse 16 with the humbled king. The humbled king. King, who is Christ Jesus, our Lord. It is upon the pages that we look today and the verses we look today in this moment in history that we are reading about right now in this moment where Jesus Christ, the King of glory, is truly at the place of exalted humility. Now you might say to yourself, preacher, that sounds like a contradictory of terms. That sounds like the terms are contradictory one to another, but think of it like this. One could not reach a higher example of humility than what Jesus suffered here on earth. You will be hard-pressed to find it anywhere. No one suffered like King Jesus. No one suffered like Christ the Lord. And so He is In more or less terms, he is the exalted example of humility. You will not find another example that supersedes what Christ did here. In fact, verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, this group of soldiers. This place is known as the Praetorium. It was an outdoor arena-style facility where they would have many meetings, and many meetings would take place, and sometimes trials would take place as well. In this place, 
It was inside the palace in which where people would pass by through the streets. And so no doubt as people are passing by the praetorium here, they would have no doubt seen Jesus standing out in front of it. You may have seen some artist renditions of Pilate walking out in this arena style area where Pilate is behind him. He's bowed his head in in. Uh, in humility, and the crowd is out shouting, crucify him, crucify him. You may have seen some Renaissance rendition paintings of, of this scene. So he is, he is led out, and the soldiers are there whose duty it was to see to his crucifixion, to make sure that everything went in order. And it was said that the Persians invented the crucifixion process of execution, but it was the Romans who perfected it, and they were true to their craft. Verse 17, they clothed him with purple, they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head, and they said, Hail, King of the Jews! Now, this band of soldiers began to mock our Lord by placing a crown of thorns on his head and a robe of purple on his back. And scholars debate to this day what this true crown of thorns would be. Is it a thorn uh, that is large? Is it a flowery uh, arrangement that would go upon his head resembling a Greek crown? But the idea is to put this crown on his head as a sign of shame. Instead of the crown of a king that is placed upon his head, he received the crown of thorns. It is a foreshadowing of of pain and, and shame. It is a foreshadowing of the curse and sin that erupted upon this earth due to willful disobedience and and sin. The crown of thorns helps to point our minds toward the humility of Jesus. He in all power and all scope could have any time taken that crown of thorns off of his head and could have marched triumphantly back out of the city of Jerusalem or could have taken it over at any time. But this crown of thorns brings our mind to a place of humility that Jesus who came to unravel the fault of humankind and willful sin and disobedience to take away the burden of sin would take upon his head the symbol of evil the symbol of sin brought on this earth and he carries it on his very temples for you and i what a savior amen what a savior now the bible shows a purple cloth that was very costly the soldiers began to mock jesus Calling him the king of the Jews. It was as if they were saying that you're not even close to the prestige of the Caesar. In fact, it is kind of a play on words where they would say, Hail, King Caesar. Hail, Caesar. They were mocking him. And yet Jesus was so much more. He is the very logos, the very reason for creation itself. In fact, Caesar wouldn't even be a bug on the windshield compared to the glory of Christ. I want you to listen to how the Bible writes of their mocking. And these may be familiar passages to you, but maybe they would be a stinging accusation a little more for you this morning. And they were striking his head with the reed. They were spitting on him. They were kneeling down, mocking him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him and they put this purple cloak on him and put his clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him again and again. This rapid succession 
the soldiers. Now, this isn't a one and done. This is a rapid succession where the soldiers would, would strike our Lord and they were kneeling down in front of him in rapid succession, mocking him. And if you're a student of God's word, you know that Isaiah forecasted this 700 plus years ago. In fact, Isaiah predicted something about the suffering servant. He predicted something concerning Messiah. When he wrote in Isaiah 50 verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. That sounds as if Isaiah was right there, doesn't it? It sounds as if Isaiah was writing a play-by-play, a blow-by-blow account of what was happening I know for many of us today, you know the story, hopefully, of the death of our Lord. But just because we know what happened here, and just because many of us even today could probably quote verbatim what I just read, and just because you know the story and you know the account of Christ's birth, it doesn't mean that we do not submit to His Lordship and repeat the gospel to ourselves daily. To remind ourselves of what our Lord went through. I want you to know that this coronation, this crowning of the King of the Jews, this coronation ceremony, even if it was mockery, it reminds us that Christ is the victor. And you might say, well, how so, preacher? Well, because I am a student of God's Word, and I know how the story ends. (laughs) I know how the Bible ends. Because we have the canon of Scripture. We have God's Word that shows us that never again would the precious Lord Jesus lower His head in shame. Never again will He bear a stripe on His back for my sin or your sin. Never again will His face be beaten to a place of unrecognition. The Lord Jesus might receive mockery today and does from our society, but it isn't warranted And it is not rightly placed. And God's people also might be mocked for persecution for their their faith. But we know that Christ is the victor. And it will never come close to what my Lord Jesus suffered. My suffering here, my suffering here is just a band-aid compared to the wounds that my Christ bore for our sins. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said this to say about the coronation of Christ. He said, the thorn chaplet was a triumphant or triumphal crown. Christ had fought with sin from the day, the first day when he stood foot to foot with it in the wilderness up to the time when he entered Pilate's hall. And then he had conquered, he conquered sin. And as a witness that he had gained the victory, behold, sin's crown seized as a trophy. What was the crown of sin? It was thorns. But now Christ has spoiled sin of its richest regalia and He wears it Himself, glorious champion, all hail King Jesus. And Christ desires for you today, because we have victory in Him, listen, to put your rest and to put your hope in Him. Amen. He is the victor. The crown of thorns, the robe on his back, is all for his glory. So let me ask you this. Is he your king? Is he your king today? As we travel through the rest of the text, we are reminded of the cross again. 
The cross becomes an emblem of suffering and shame. In fact, verse 21 says this, They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now when Jesus was led away for crucifixion, he was treated like every other person to be crucified. And yet to some degree, they were going to use Christ as an example. He was was treated like these criminals and given this big piece of wood to carry along the way. Some speculate that this big beam of wood that Christ would have had to carry was right around 300 300 pounds. And Christ is stumbling along the way. He is no doubt beaten. He is bruised. He is is, is weakly making himself up to Golgotha's hill. And the Romans step in and 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 they desired to keep the accused alive, Jesus, until he died on the cross. By them grabbing Simon to carry the cross, it was not a a glimpse of mercy from the Romans. No, it wasn't. In fact, it was quite the opposite. It was so that the Lord Jesus would make it to the cross so that he would die on that hill and not on the side of the road. So they called one by the name of Simon of Cyrene or Simon the Cyrene. He becomes a picture of what Jesus said to his disciples to pick up your cross and follow me. Matthew 6, 24. The Pharisees and the religious leaders may not have known the Cyrene, and so they would call Simon over. More than likely, he was visiting Jerusalem due to the Passover from his homeland, some 800 miles away from from all this activity, on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea. He knew little to nothing of Jesus, and had no desire to be associated with this man who was condemned. If Simon was making his way to the Passover, it means in some regard he wanted to regard the law, would have been a man of the law, and so would have no desire to be associated with a man who was, quote-unquote, unclean. Two things may be implied by carrying of the cross by Simon. Number one, because of its weight and because of the association with Jesus, a criminal, he didn't want to carry it because it was heavy, nor did he want to associate with a man who would be, quote, unquote, unclean. The second implication would be, no doubt, as this transaction happened over history, that he would have remembered this as one of the most memorable moments in his life. And many that were gathered on Golgotha would probably say the same. And so it is with us as well. Carrying the cross of Christ, serving Him, and pushing along the way, it might be painful sometimes. Sometimes it is painful to bear the cross, to stand up for what is truth, to serve Him, to to love God's people and to serve them as well, to push along this way. But let me tell you this, in America today, we Christ followers have it easy. I think of the world over who are constantly bearing that cross. We can't even relate because we have gotten so comfortable sitting on the seat of do-nothing that we can't even see 
what God is doing in the rest of the world. God have mercy. But let me tell you this. Carrying the cross of Christ and pressing on is painful sometimes. I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I know there are people all over the world right now who would say the very same thing. Verse 22 says, And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, keep in mind that Jesus is the suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied some 700 plus years before Christ was born. And so if Christ is the suffering servant, it should not surprise you that he forbade to drink from the, this, this wine mixed. Suffering is, part of, the betray, is the part of the betrayal of our Lord. We have categorized and placed a character on Christ that is sometimes unbiblical. Christ is a suffering servant. Christ isn't this Anglo-Saxon painting, blue-eyed, blonde hair of a Jesus in a painting looking up to heaven. He isn't this scrawny fixation on the cross that many artists' renditions carry. He isn't this weak and, and, and scrawny individual that, that we have portrayed him to be. Let me tell you this. Christ came as a suffering servant. He died on the cross, but he rose again on the third day, which, which, tells, which tells me something about my Lord. If I read my Bible correctly, he's coming to, to judge sin. He is coming to wreak havoc terribly upon sin and wickedness. This isn't a, pure, a picture of a weak and anemic Jesus. This is a power of Jesus who's strong and, and powerful and who will judge the quick and the dead. He is the Christ who is coming again to one day put this world back to where God had originally intended it to be. So suffering part of Christ is part of who he is. We know him as the suffering servant. And the place of the skull, Golgotha, reminds us again of the suffering. Now I imagine this phrase, they brought him in, was a literal, since, since he could not hardly walk, they brought him in and they offered Jesus some wine mixed with myrrh, which was usually offered by the Jews to people who were about to die. So it, it's as though they would offer this substance to ease Jesus' pain. If you were to look up the word in a dictionary, a concordance, a Greek dictionary, if you were to look this up, I, I believe it comes from an Aramaic, Aramaic or, or Greek, you would find that this myrrh had uh, uh, pain-easing, if you will, um, conditions, if you will. So it was almost like a narcotic. If you were to look it up, it, it, it carries the idea that this myrrh like a narcotic, a narcotic in that it would ease the pain. And so Jesus, if, if he was coming as the suffering servant to suffer every nail in his hand, every stripe on his, black, on his back, every drop of blood that was shed from his body, we should not be surprised that Jesus would say, no, I'm here to suffer. I'm here to suffer. 
It's as though the easing of this pain, Jesus would refuse. The Bible tells me they crucified him. They've divided their garments amongst them, cast lots for them. The evangelist Mark adds this portion to inform the reader that something is going on more here. It's more than just gambling for a criminal's garment. It was a fulfillment of Scripture. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said this of Psalm 22 and verse 18 that says, They divided my garments amongst them, and they would cast uh, lots for his clothing. In the third hour when he had been crucified, they, uh, they had uh, separated their nights into, into four three-hour watches. And, and so if we would have followed the trajectory according to their calendar, we would come to the understanding that Christ was nailed to the cross a little after, after midday. This inscription was put upon the cross, the king of the Jews, and the charge was this, claiming to be king in opposition to Caesar and to mock Jesus of Nazareth as a king, quote-unquote. But we know that it was ultimately because it pleased God to crush the Son. Isaiah 53, 10, it pleased God to crush him. He was placed between two robbers, one on the right and one on, on the left. And every gospel account retells the thieves on the cross. And as historical as they might be, and they are historical, they represent something as well, a mindset, a two-fold mindset. One criminal on the cross wanted repentance. Remember me this day. In paradise, while the other was prideful and sinful and rejected Christ. Luke records it in this way. Those are malefactors. They railed against him. If you be Christ, save yourself. One of the criminals who hung there railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. But the others rebuked him saying, Do not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said, truly I say to you this day that you will be with me in paradise. So it re represents rejection and repentance. And those who passed by, they wagged their head at him and, and were in disgust saying, you would destroy this temple and build it in three days. Save yourself, come down from there. The beauty of this scene is quite obvious that he wasn't there to save himself. Although he could have stepped off the cross, he wasn't there for himself. He was there for the glory of God. He was there to bring salvation to all that would call upon the name of the Lord. The very ones who were condemning him were the very ones that Jesus would come to die for. So, the priest and the scribes mocked him. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let Christ, in this mocking tone, let Christ, King of Israel, come down and, so that we might believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And there was many that were crucified with Jesus that day. The highlight is on Jesus and the two on the cross. But there were others, many others that were crucified in any given day. There would have been people crucified up and down the road. There would have been people who would have been hung up on the cross. In fact, one scholar one day said this, that in one day's time it was known that Rome had crucified 6,000 people in one day. But the highlight on this day is Jesus of Nazareth. The cross has become the emblem 
and of shame to many, and yet even, even in the shame of the cross, it is beautiful. So as you know, we had the privilege of going to Passaic, New Jersey a couple weeks ago. And we got to work with the people in New Jersey, tearing out drywall and getting to know the people. And I would imagine that many who went to New Jersey had story to, to tell of how God had blessed them in his time. And I remember, I think it was either Tuesday or Wednesday, I would be knocking out a wall or something, and I had this nagging in my foot, my nagging in my shoe. And I said, well, let me get this rock out. So I sat down and went and took my shoe off and shook it and out fell a little piece of something. I don't know what it was. Got back up, went to work again. I was like, well, darn it. I thought that rock was gone out of my, out of my boot. I kept on working. The next day I got back up, didn't feel the rock in my shoe. I said, I must have got it out. Then about the second house where we were at, I was like, well, wait a minute. That rock's there again. And so I began to, what is this thing? Shake my boot out, put it back on. Went on working a little bit. And there it was again, this nagging, this nagging piercing of my toe. It didn't break the skin. I wasn't bleeding. It was just a little annoyance. So I got up that early morning, and I looked down at my boot, and I had a finishing nail sticking through my boot that had rode with me for two days. And here's the slide of that in case you want to, in case you want to see that. I carried that in my pocket. And why do I carry such a small little nail? Now, you carpenters might be able to tell me exactly what kind of nail that is. But it looks like a finishing nail or something to me. But that was sticking in my boot. I put it in my, I put that thing in my pocket. It was a nagging annoyance all day to me. But am I thinking rightly about the nail? Am I thinking rightly about this little pain, this little nagging, this little annoyance and I come at the end of the day sharing that story to tell you this, that that little nagging, that little annoyance, that little side trip, if you will, if you want to call it that, cannot even compare. It's not even on the same landscape to the suffering that our Lord Jesus bore on the cross. Handing the cross and having the spikes driven through his hands and his feet, knowing what our Lord suffered, sometimes we can't relate to that. It's a little annoyance. I think about those big spikes that were nailed into his hands and his feet. Now, I'm not going to get into all the science. I'm not a scientist or a doctor about what happened there, but I just know that it wasn't a little finishing nail. I say that to say this, what we've read today and what we find in the other gospel accounts is that he did that on the cross so that you might be free from sin. So you can lay your sin and lay your burden at the cross of Christ. Would you pray with me?